0: I'd like to thank my brand new sponsor, True TrueNiogen, for supporting my podcast. True TrueNiogen fuels the body's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports a healthy heart. And now you can get 10% off your first purchase as a new customer at TrueNiogen.com slash Peter with promo code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I want to start off the podcast by saying I hope everybody is enjoying this three-day holiday weekend. But because Memorial Day is the 31st of the month, the last trading day of this month was yesterday, Friday, because the next time the market's open for business, it will be June 1st. So we closed the books on May. And while investors didn't sell in May and go away, what they did do in May was rotate. We really began, I think, the long overdue great rotation out of the hyped up, overvalued momentum type stocks into more traditional value-oriented dividend-paying stocks. In fact, you can certainly see the rotation when you look at the averages because the only average that was down on the month was the NASDAQ. And the biggest gainer was the Dow. The Dow was up about 2% in May. S&P, maybe about a half a percent. NASDAQ, though, down... One and a half percent. In fact, this was the biggest monthly drop for the NASDAQ since October of last year. And if you break it down just to the FANG stocks, it was the biggest monthly drop since September. And so, the reason that you saw weakness in the NASDAQ and strength in the Dow is because the Dow Jones is where you can find more value-oriented stocks. And of course, value is a relative term. I mean, they may not be value stocks in an absolute sense that they're real bargains, but their value relative to these hyped up momentum stocks, I mean, they have real earnings, they pay dividends. Maybe they're not very high dividends, but at least they pay them and they own a lot of real assets. But you can also see the rotation by comparing the foreign stock markets to the domestic stock markets. Because there you saw substantial outperformance, maybe two to three times the gains in foreign stocks as you saw in the S&P or even the Dow. And the reason for that is because foreign markets have a lot more value-oriented stocks than the US. America leads the world in the overpriced momentum stocks And so when those stocks were in vogue and everybody was buying them, the U.S. market uh, was the best game in town. But now that we're rotating away from those names and people want out of momentum and into value, they're also getting out of the U.S., market into foreign markets, which also means they're getting out of dollars, right? You have to sell your dollars to get foreign currencies if you want to invest in foreign stocks. And that's another reason that foreign stocks outperformed the U.S. market. It's not just that the stocks did better in local currency, but those local currencies went up in terms of the dollar. In fact, the dollar index dropped in May for its second consecutive monthly decline. But more importantly, this is the lowest monthly close for the U.S. dollar index since 2014. And of course, 2014 was a big up year for the dollar. But I think we're going to reverse all of those gains over the course of the next year. But it wasn't just strength in foreign currencies, broad-based strength in commodities in the month of May. In fact, May was the 11th month out of the past 13 months where commodities were up. Commodities like copper and oil up 4% on the month. Oil was very interesting in that it made a new post-COVID high yesterday. In fact, oil got above 67.5. The high price I saw was 67.52, although oil could not hold those gains and ended up closing the day in the red at 66.32, although it was a positive week in a positive month. But the real standouts in the commodity sector were the precious metals. Gold and silver enjoyed a very strong month of May. Both metals were up about 7.5%. In fact, I think gold had its best monthly gain since July of last year we closed above 1900 1903 spot 50 was where we settled up seven dollars and 60 cents on the day silver didn't quite regain the 28 handle but it closed at 2794 it was up a dime on the day as far as monthly closes go Gold's $1,903.50 close for the month of May was the highest monthly close of the year, and it's also the highest monthly close since August of 2020, and that was where the gold market peaked before it entered into its most recent correction, and I think now we're poised to take out new highs when it comes to gold. And since gold did so well as a metal, gold stocks did even better. If you look at the GDX, that index was up about 15% on the month. But, you know, I think the most significant development in the gold market was what happened on Friday as the market reacted to the hotter than expected increase in the personal consumption expenditure index which is contained in the personal income and spending numbers that were released yesterday morning at 8.30. And there was the anticipation that we would see a pretty big deceleration of the huge gain in personal income from the previous month. Because after all, March is when consumers received their stimulus checks And so the original report was for a 21.1% surge in personal income in March. And again, this is not because Americans worked harder and earned more money. It's because in many cases, they didn't work at all and just got money from the U.S. government, which printed it, you know, the Fed created it out of thin air and the government mailed the checks. They actually revised that big gain slightly lower to a gain of 20.9%. The consensus was for a small gain in April of 0.5. But instead, we ended up with a 13.1% drop in personal income. So without the benefit of stimulus checks, incomes collapsed. Although there was a big range of the forecast. The upper end was 4.7% gain. The lower end was a 14% loss. So all over the board, wide spectrum, But we almost hit the low end of the range with that minus 13.1. Now, if you look at spending, the prior month was originally reported as a gain of 4.2. That was upwardly revised to a gain of 4.7. So income a little less, spending a little more. So the big savings rate that we had was not quite as big because the consumer was not able to spend all of his stimulus money, a lot of that money, obviously, or some of it was spent in April instead. Spending was supposed to rise by 0.6, and it just missed where it was supposed to be at 0.5. But again, a big range of estimates. The low end was 0.3. The high end was 0.2. So we came in near the low end. So a very bad report if you're looking at it from the consumer's perspective, because income was almost the low end of a big range, whereas spending was also the low end of a big range. So if you think that the consumer is going to power the economy, well, it looks like the consumer is running out of steam and is in bad need of another stimulus check. But the real numbers that impacted both the precious metals market and the foreign exchange market was the core and headline personal consumption expenditure index This is something that the Federal Reserve pays a lot of attention to. I think it's considered its most favorite way to measure inflation because it's usually kind of benign because I think there's a lot of adjustments going on in there, a lot of substitution to kind of mask how bad inflation really is. So I think it really understates the true cost of living. It more measures the cost of surviving as consumers substitute lower quality goods uh, for the higher priced stuff they can't really afford anymore, right? It's kind of like, you know, I can't afford steak anymore, so now I'm eating chicken. Well, I can't afford chicken anymore, so now I'm eating dog food. The whole idea is, well, as long as you're eating, then we're not going to count it as inflation. But if you look at that number, the estimate for the gain in the PCE, the year-over-year gain, was 3.5%. And we ended up coming up slightly above that at 3.6%. Also, we revised up the year-over-year gain from the previous month, originally reported it up 2.3, up 2.4%. Now, that is a big number, up 3.6%. In fact, it is the biggest jump in the headline PCE in 13 years on a month-over-month basis. The gain matched expectations up 0.6. That followed an upwardly revised 0.6 gain in March. It was originally reported as up 0.5. So we have back-to-back 0.6% gains in the monthly. Now, if you strip out food and energy, this is a so-called core. The month-over-month gain was 0.7, which matched expectations, a bigger rise than the 04 Which was the unrevised number for March. But where we beat again to the upside was on the year over year core. The expectation there was for a rise of 3%. Instead, we gained 3.1%. And we upwardly revised the prior year over year core number from up 1.8 to up 1.9. But most significantly, That 3.1% gain year over year in the core, that was the biggest rise in 29 years, right? So you got to go all the way back to 1992 to see a gain that big. And I think that what we just saw in April, I think we're going to see much bigger numbers in the months ahead. We are going to shatter uh, that number. We're going to have all-time record high increases in year over year uh, PCE, both headline and core. Now, of course, as soon as these hotter-than-expected numbers came out, traders did exactly what they're trained to do, whether it's just a Pavlovian-type reaction or it's just because the algorithms are programmed that the minute a inflation number comes out that's hotter than expected, these algorithms are pre-programmed to immediately buy U.S. dollars and sell gold. And that's exactly what happened. If you looked at the reaction in the dollar index, the dollar index was maybe slightly ahead, and all of a sudden it spiked up to about half a percent gain. Gold, which was a little bit down, maybe a few bucks, uh, immediately sank to down about $15 as soon as these numbers hit the screen. Now again, this seems counterintuitive, because after all, higher inflation means that the dollar is losing its purchasing power at a faster pace than what people had expected. Well, if the dollar is losing value faster than you thought, wouldn't you want to sell dollars and not buy them if you are losing purchasing power? If inflation is hotter than you thought, if there's more inflation than you were anticipating, doesn't that mean that you're more likely to want to hedge that inflation? More likely to want to buy an inflation hedge like gold? Because gold does better if there's more inflation. So that is what you would expect. Except that is not what traders are keen on. What they're still looking at, and I've discussed that before on the podcast, is when there is a bigger than expected inflation number. The markets then expect the Fed to alter monetary policy to try to rein in an unexpected increase in inflation. Because after all, the Fed is saying we're going to keep interest rates low because there's no inflation or it's really low. Well, if the Fed is wrong and inflation is higher than they expect, well, then maybe they're going to tighten sooner than we expect. And so all of these hotter than expected inflation numbers cause the markets to anticipate higher interest rates, which are then perceived as being bullish for the dollar and bearish for gold. But eventually, what traders are going to figure out is that high inflation is not good for the dollar and bad for gold because the Fed is going to fight inflation by tightening policy. It's because the Fed is not going to fight inflation. It's not going to tighten policy. And so inflation is going to continue to erode away the value of those dollars. So why would you buy them? You won't. You will sell them and you will buy gold. And that's exactly what traders are going to do. Pretty soon, bad news on inflation is not going to be good news for the dollar it's going to be bad news for the dollar and bad news on inflation is not going to be bad news for gold it is going to be good news for gold and in fact there is an indication that traders are already waking up to this reality because after this knee-jerk reaction to buy dollars and sell gold traders spent the rest of the day selling dollars and buying gold because the dollar gradually surrendered almost all of its early morning uh, post-inflation news gains. And gold not only recouped all of its losses, but ended up closing positive on the day. In fact, it closed near the absolute high of the day with the great monthly close that I already discussed. So I think this is very significant because it shows to me that the traders are waking up to this reality that inflation is bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold. And they're starting to realize that it doesn't matter how much the Fed barks about its willingness or intentions or ability to fight inflation should it rear its head, the market's starting to realize that inflation isn't going to be fought, that inflation is going to win by default because the Fed isn't even gonna try to fight it because it can't, and so we're starting to see that. And if this is the case, I expect to see much bigger gains in the price of gold and silver in the very near future. Now, continuing with this theme of rotation out of overpriced speculative assets into uh, conservative value assets, the same thing was happening With cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular, in sharp contrast to the strong month that gold had in May, Bitcoin had a disastrous month. Bitcoin is down about 40% so far during the month of May. Of course, I say so far because Bitcoin is still trading. The stock market is done for the month, but not Bitcoin because Bitcoin trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So Bitcoin still has three more days of trading, including today uh, to, to end May. And so who knows? I mean, as I am recording this podcast, Bitcoin is below 35,000, right? And that's where it's down 40% on the month. But if you look at the Bitcoin chart objectively, right, you look at the slope of of the huge parabolic move up and now look at the slope of the move down. And it really looks like that entire move is about to get reversed. And to me, it looks like Bitcoin can easily fall not just to 20,000, which was the old high, but I think the low is more likely to come in somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 before we see some type of a dead cat bounce. Who knows? We may even do that this Memorial Day weekend because the weekends are notorious for Bitcoin crashes because you don't have as much volume there. People are on vacation and they're not necessarily trading. And so you have less volume. And so maybe you can exaggerate these moves. So it wouldn't surprise me. To see Bitcoin move down somewhere between 10 and 15,000. Ultimately, it's going much lower than that, but nothing goes down in a straight line, not even Bitcoin. There's going to be a bounce at some point, right? People buy the dip. And so if we do get a dip to between 10 and 15,000, I do expect that people will buy it. Although it's really uh, not correct to call something like that a dip, that would constitute a 75 to 80% collapse from the $65,000 high. But the point is, even if you are a Bitcoin bull, even if you think Bitcoin is going to go to 100000 and that's why you got laser beams on your eyes, even if that happens, and I think it's pretty unlikely that it will happen. In fact, I don't even think it's that likely that Bitcoin makes a new high. But clearly, you know, it's more likely that it gets back above 65,000 than it hits 100,000. But whether it gets to 65,000 or 100,000, there is a very high probability that before it goes up there, it's going down to, you know, 15,000 to 10,000 first, that that is the path that it's going to take and given the potential for that type of decline, there is maximum complacency out there. I still do not get any sense of fear or panic. Nobody is worried. Everybody is dismissing the possibility that Bitcoin could drop to 10 or 15,000. But if you look objectively at a chart, it seems pretty obvious that that's where it's going to go. In fact, it wouldn't necessarily mean it was a bearish long-term chart. If you look at the downward slope, if you connect the 2020 high, which was about 20,000, and you draw a diagonal line and you connect a couple of other significant tops, we broke out of that downtrend at the end of 2020. If we go back down and test that downtrend, which was resistance and is now support, it's gonna. I think it's around maybe 13, 14,000 is somewhere in there. And so that's why I'm picking maybe ten to 15,000 somewhere in that range is a realistic place for Bitcoin to go given the way the chart looks, given the parabolic nature of the ascent and how the collapse is not only mirroring that descent, but is actually taking place faster, which is typical, right? Markets take the elevator up and the staircase down. Now, obviously in this case, uh, Bitcoin took the express elevator up. And so now it's, it's, it's taking like a fireman's pole down. Uh, so it, even that movement is being compressed, which is why the whole thing could implode just over this weekend. But I think the real significant aspect of what happened to Bitcoin in May, in contrast to what happened to gold, is it should completely blow away the narrative that Bitcoin is digital gold. I mean, I've been saying this for the beginning that Bitcoin is not digital gold. I mean, it's not digital gold because you can't use Bitcoin as a replacement for gold in any of its real world uses. I mean, if I wanna make some jewelry, I can't just decide to use Bitcoin instead of uh, gold. It won't work. Now, what the Bitcoin bugs will say is, look, Bitcoin is not a replacement for gold as far as its actual uses. Where you can replace gold with Bitcoin is in your portfolio, that instead of putting gold in an investment portfolio to be a safe haven, to be a store of value, to be an inflation hedge, you can substitute Bitcoin as digital gold. And Bitcoin will do for your portfolio the same thing that gold does. Well, this proves that that's complete nonsense. Gold was up 7.5% in May and Bitcoin is down 40%. How is Bitcoin behaving anything like gold? What it's behaving like is other high risk assets uh, that went down like these overpriced Nasdaq stocks, like a lot of these uh, new innovation type companies that Kathy that Wood has been loading up on. Those stocks got clobbered in May, along with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin didn't act like digital gold. It acted like some type of digital tech stock or something like that. It is not correlated with gold. It's correlated with very speculative assets. If anything, there is an inverse correlation between Bitcoin and gold. So if Bitcoin trades the opposite of gold, In what manner is it digital gold? In no manner. If you're looking for an asset to balance out a portfolio, an asset that might go up when other assets are going down, the last thing that you would want to buy is Bitcoin. Because when your risky assets are going down, well, Bitcoin is going to go down even more. So Bitcoin doesn't reduce the risk of your portfolio. It increases the risk of your portfolio. Look, what Bitcoin should do, if it was some kind of supercharged, version of gold a digital gold maybe you would expect that when gold goes up well bitcoin goes up even more right but when gold goes down bitcoin goes down even more but since you expect gold to go up why not buy digital gold because it will go up even more sure if you're wrong and gold goes down bitcoin may go down more but since you're buying gold because you think it's going to go up Well, why not just buy Bitcoin because it'll go up more, except it doesn't do that. I mean, what behaves like that would be silver. So if you wanted a supercharged version of gold, well, you would buy silver because that's exactly the way silver behaves. Silver is highly correlated with gold. So when gold goes up, silver generally goes up more. When gold goes down, silver generally goes down more. It's rare that they go in opposite directions. There's not that many days I mean, it happens once in a while, but you're not going to see days where they're going in opposite directions. The way you see Bitcoin and gold, they go in opposite directions all the time. There is no rhyme or reason to the way Bitcoin trades in relation to gold. So this should put that myth to bed once and for all. Bitcoin in no way, shape or form is digital gold. And anybody who is thinking about buying gold, you cannot substitute Bitcoin. Where you can substitute Bitcoin is if you're thinking of buying GameStop or you're thinking of buying some other meme stock that's overpriced and you're buying it having no relation to its fundamentals. You just buy it because you think some greater fool might pay a higher price. That's where you can substitute Bitcoin. You can buy Bitcoin instead of something like that. But if you're thinking about buying gold... Maybe buy some silver instead of gold, but don't even consider anything like Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. And in fact, look at what Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, had to say about Bitcoin. And first of all, you know, the fact that JP Morgan and other Wall Street investment banks are opening up their platforms so that people can trade bitcoin the bitcoin community is touting this as some type of hey this is main street acceptance of bitcoin it's now gone mainstream the institutions are now all in there everybody is opening up and this is shown as some kind of endorsement right hey JP Morgan is letting their clients buy Bitcoin. So clearly, this is an endorsement of Bitcoin. This proves that Bitcoin is here to stay. In fact, every time I see these interviews with people on Bitcoin, they keep saying, look, a couple of years ago, we weren't sure about Bitcoin. We thought maybe it was a fad, but now we know it's here to stay. How do we know that? How how is anything that has happened recently proven that Bitcoin is here to stay? Well, one of the reasons people think it's here to stay is because companies like JP Morgan are giving their clients access. Well, listen to what the CEO of JP Morgan had to say, quote, I don't care about Bitcoin. I have no interest in it. On the other hand, clients are interested and I don't tell clients what to do. Really? You're the CEO? of JP Morgan and you don't tell clients what to do? I mean, I thought that was what you're supposed to do. I mean, JP Morgan is a full service firm, right? They're not a discount broker. Discount brokers don't tell clients what to do. But if you're a full service broker, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. That's why people are paying you those big commissions because you're giving them some advice. So to say that, "Hey, we don't tell our clients what to do," that's nonsense. Of course you do. But What he's saying is we got a bunch of clients that want to buy Bitcoin and even though I don't think it's a good investment, the clients want to do it, so we're just going to let them do it. In fact, he said, quote, something that's not supported by anything, I do not believe has much value. My own personal advice to people is to stay away from it. And then he said he thinks it's nothing like a fiat currency. He says it's nothing like gold. Buyer beware, right? Hey, we're going to sell it to you, but buyer beware. Caveat emptor, right? You know, we're like used car salesmen. Don't expect that this car is reliable. Just, you know, buyer beware. Take your chances. In fact, we know it's a clunker, but we put it out on the lot anyway because we hope someone is dumb enough to drive away with it. I mean, the only thing I disagree with is is his comment that it's nothing like fiat currency because bitcoin does share something in common with fiat currency and that is it has no fundamental value that its value is derived from faith except with fiat currency you've got the government standing behind that faith and with bitcoin you've got no government you've just got the crowd you've got the mob you've got the the bubble mentality uh but Investors in Bitcoin, holders of Bitcoin are prone to lose that confidence a lot faster than holders of fiat currencies. But the point is that JP Morgan putting Bitcoin on its platform is not an endorsement of Bitcoin. It just shows you that JP Morgan doesn't give a damn about their clients. All they care about is their clients' money. What they're saying is, hey, if our clients are dumb enough to buy Bitcoin, we want to make it easy for them to do it. And we're gonna do it on our platform. In fact, he said that they're trying to think of a safe way to give their clients access to Bitcoin. And when he says safe, he doesn't mean safe in that they're not gonna lose money because Bitcoin's not gonna go down. He knows Bitcoin's gonna go down, he knows their clients are gonna lose their money. When he says safe, he means that they don't lose their Bitcoin. Like I did, right? I lost access to my Bitcoin because I confused my PIN with my password. I was always getting into my wallet with my PIN. I never even knew my password. I assumed my PIN was my password. And when my wallet no longer accepted my PIN, you know, I was shit out of luck and, you know, I lost my Bitcoin. So what JP Morgan is trying to do is make sure that their clients don't lose their Bitcoin, that they store them safely, but he knows that his clients are going to lose money. Well, why is... Jamie Dimon allowing his customers to buy Bitcoin if he knows they're going to lose money because he wants the commissions as they lose that money that's basically what he's saying and his analogy to explain this was well you know he said I don't smoke pot but that doesn't mean if pot was legal that I wouldn't want to bank you know the cannabis industry that's not a good example just because you don't use a product I mean a lot of people don't drink alcohol but if you think an alcohol company is a good investment value, you could recommend it. Same thing with cigarettes. You might not be a smoker, but if you think that tobacco stocks are a good investment, well, recommending them as an investment is totally different than you know, your own personal habits. This is very different. I mean, I think the analogy would be better to, you know, the bartender not serving somebody who's obviously drunk, right? If somebody is at the bar and you know, you're know you the bartender and somebody is clearly intoxicated and they want more to drink and you know they're going to drive from the bar, what a good bartender will do is cut off the customer and say, you know what, buddy? You've had a little bit too much to drink. We're not serving you anymore, right? Doesn't matter what the customer wants, especially when the customer is drunk, The bartender is supposed to know better and advise the customer, hey, you had enough to drink, you know, why don't I just give you a cup of coffee or something like that. But what if the customer is like, well, you know, if you don't serve me, I'm going to go to the bar next door. And they'll serve me. So I'm just going to take my business elsewhere. So maybe the bartender is like, look, this guy is going to drink more anyway. I might as well make money off of it. I might as well let him buy a drink from me, then go next door and buy a drink from another bar. So even though he's had too much to drink, I'm just going to keep on serving him because I care more about my money. That's basically what JP Morgan is saying, because he knows that if JP Morgan tells its customers hey, don't buy Bitcoin, it's stupid, you're going to lose all your money, those customers might take their business to a competitive brokerage firm. And so rather than lose the business, uh, they're going to make it available. But the problem is, by making it available, it is like an endorsement. JP Morgan is supposed to know better. They should be telling the customers, we don't think you should buy it. It's not even a legitimate investment. It's, you know, you're gambling. I mean, you know, we don't have slot machines and roulette tables in our offices. When people come into a J.P. Morgan office, they don't also have, you know, a slot machines where they can gamble. They don't sell lottery tickets there. They're dealing in investments. Bitcoin has more in common with a lottery ticket you know, or a slot machine than it does with legitimate investments. So if JP Morgan isn't going to get into gambling, then why get into Bitcoin? Just because, you know, your customers want to do something dumb doesn't mean that you have to get down in the mud with all the other brokerage firms that are letting them do it. And, you know, if JP Morgan didn't make this available, if they said, you know what, we don't think this is a legitimate investment. But if you want to go to some other firm that doesn't give a damn about customers And you want to gamble? Well, then go ahead. But we're not going to facilitate gambling at J.P. Morgan. That's probably what they should say. But, you know, obviously, they they don't give a damn about the clients. You know, clients want to buy it. They're there to sell it to them. And this is especially troubling if you would consider that J.P. Morgan is a fiduciary. Now, I know that when you act as a broker... You're not a fiduciary. You just have to make sure that what your customers are doing is suitable. And so if your customers want to gamble, well, then you could allow them to gamble. But you're not required to do that. I mean, J.P. Morgan does not have to put this stuff on its platform. It can take a principal stance and just not allow it and just say, hey, look, we're not going to get involved in this. If you want to do it, you know, just take your business someplace else. Just like if you want to gamble, go to a casino. J.P. Morgan is a brokerage firm, an investment bank. We're not a casino. We don't allow gambling at our firm. And if you want to do that, go someplace else. You know, these Wall Street investment banks did the same thing in the dot-com bubble. I mean, they knew the public had an appetite for dot-com stocks. They knew they wanted to buy them. And so they kept manufacturing. They kept taking these stocks public one after another, knowing that eventually the music would stop. And their clients would be left holding the bag, but they didn't care. Their attitude was the music is playing, we're gonna keep on dancing because we're making all this money. And we know the music's gonna stop eventually, but it's our clients who are gonna lose the money because we keep collecting commissions and fees along the way. Really want to thank True Niagen for supporting my podcast. True Niagen fuels the body's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, supports a healthy heart, and is clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. And now you can get 10% off your first purchase as a new customer at trueniogen.comslash Peter. When using the promo code Peter, that's truniagen, dot com slash Peter with promo code Peter to save 10% on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. I want to change gears though and start talking about the federal budget because the Biden administration just unveiled its record budget proposal where the government proposes to spend six trillion dollars in fiscal 2022. So this is an all-time record as far as how much the U.S. government officially intends to spend. And number one, you always have to keep in mind that all government spending Equals taxation. So if the government is going to spend $6 trillion, it needs to deprive the economy of $6 trillion worth of resources one way or another. Sure, there are some tax increases in the budget proposal. I'll get to them a bit later. But those tax increases won't even come close to funding this $6 trillion budget So most of the money is going to be printed into existence by the Fed, which means instead of paying for all this government with an income tax or some kind of excise tax, the average American is going to get the bill through the inflation tax, meaning the price of everything that you want to buy is going to go up. So you're going to end up buying less stuff because the government took your purchasing power. But, you know, another problem with the $6 trillion number is that it's all BS because this is the official spending. But the government spends a lot of money that is not official, right? It's not on budget and it doesn't count. I mean, it counts in that we've got to pay for it as taxpayers, but it doesn't count as far as the government being honest in reporting how much it's going to spend. And one example is natural disasters. There is no line item in the budget for natural disasters because the government says well you know these are just one-off events they're not recurring they're extraordinary items and so we're just not going to account for them because you know they they're not reoccurring except they are every single year there is at least one if not multiple national disasters in which the government spends emergency bailout money rescue funds yes it's not exactly the same i mean hurricane maria You know, every year we don't have Hurricane Maria because they keep changing the names. But every year we have some hurricane, whether it's Sandy or Hugo or whatever they want to name it, there's a pretty good idea that every hurricane season, somebody's going to get hit. I mean, sometimes uh, two or three of them or more make landfall in the United States and the government's going to spend money. And of course, hurricanes aren't the only Natural disasters. What about wildfires, right? there seem to be happening every year, these huge wildfires, and the government's got to spend money on those. If the government were honest, right, what they would do is they would look back over time and say, hey, every year about how much money do we end up spending on natural disasters? And then they would put that line item in the budget, knowing that there's going to be some disasters. We just don't know which ones. We don't know where exactly they're going to hit. But history shows that we get them every year and every year the government spends money on them. Now, I don't think the government should be spending money on them. It's not a constitutional function. But since the government doesn't care about the constitution, we know we're going to spend the money. It should be in there. It's not. So if the government says we're going to spend $6 trillion, it's probably going to be $7 trillion, if not more. So it's an even bigger tax uh, than the one that they're threatening to impose. But, you know, another problem too that i have with the federal budget is why do we even call it a budget i don't even think budget is the appropriate term to use to describe what the government is offering up here because it's not a budget see what a budget is think about it the way a family would do a budget the first thing you do is you figure out how much money you have right so in the case of a family let's say there's a husband and wife and They both have jobs. And let's say their combined salary is $150,000, right? That's what they've got. Well, now they have to figure out a budget for their $150,000. Well, they get a piece of paper. Well, let's look at the things that we need to spend, right? Well, we have rent or we have a mortgage. How much is that? Okay, they put that. Uh, Here's how much we're spending for our health insurance. We got to have that. Here's what we're spending for insurance, taxes, Here's our budget for food, you know, we got to eat. So they list all the things that they know they need, and then let's say they have money left over. Now they can say, "Okay, well, how much can we spend for uh entertainment? How much can we spend on going to restaurants? Do we have money in there for a vacation? Let's try to budget in a vacation, right? So you try to create a budget based on how much money you have to spend. And then you kind of budget your expenditures and you kind of make your spending equal to your income so it all works out, right? You're on a budget. You're That's not freewheeling and spending willy-nilly. You want to make sure you budget your spending because you want to live within your means and you want to make sure that you spend the money that you have. But that is not what the government does. The government doesn't even care about what the revenue is. The government just figures out what it wants to buy what it wants to spend money on and that's what the budget is it's just a spending proposal here's how much money we're going to spend the revenues have nothing to do with it i mean then they report after the fact yes we decided we're going to spend six trillion dollars but we only have four trillion dollars in revenue so that means we're just going to borrow two trillion dollars that is not a budget Right. If a family did that, right, a family would sit back and they would say, "Okay, what do we want? And after they, you know, they listed, you know, the must haves or the things that they need, uh, like their their rent and their food and their insurance and taxes, they said, oh, what else do we want? We want to buy a new sports car. Uh, We want to uh, 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 build a pool in our backyard oh, we want to take a, a European vacation, right? They start putting this wish list together of all the things they want to do. And let's say they end up with 250000 And they say, oh, that's our budget, 250000 Oh, but we only earn 150000 Oh, so I guess we're going to have to figure out how we're going to borrow another 100000 so that we make this budget work. That is nonsense, no family is going to budget like that, but that is exactly how the U.S. government comes up with its budget. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, but, you know, the, the government is not like a family. They could just spend whatever they want. No, they can't. I mean, they can do it for a while until there's a crisis. The reason they can get away with it is because people think, well, you know, the government could just raise taxes and get more revenue. Well, not really, because raising taxes is politically impossible at this point, unless you're going to raise taxes on the rich. But when you're raising taxes on 1% of the population and the other 99% are off the table, there's only so much revenue you can get by raising taxes. Now, of course, the other excuse is, well, governments could just print the money so they don't really need a budget. It doesn't matter. Whatever they want to spend, they can just print up the money well, that only works until the money they're printing no longer has any value, and we are very close to hitting that point. So again, this is not a budget. If this was a budget, what the government would do is they would look at their expected tax revenue, let's say that's $4 million, and then they would say, okay, we got $4 million to spend, let's budget it. You can't spend six trillion dollars when you got four trillion in revenue so they have to cut two trillion in spending they got to prioritize oh we we can't have the european vacation we can't put in a new swimming pool right we don't even have the money to do the non-discretionary items that are in the budget let alone all the discretionary i mean what these numbers show you is your discretionary spending we shouldn't even exist unless you're willing to cut into things like entitlements and defense and all that Because there is no money for it. So this is not a budgeting process. This is a wish list of spending. The government's like, we're going to spend all this money. And oh, by the way, only some of it is actually covered by taxes. So the rest, we're just going to borrow. So with that, though, I want to get into the details of this spending bill. And the most ridiculous part of the government's spending bill is always the economic assumptions that underlie it because whenever you're going to forecast what you're going to spend well you have to have some idea about what things are going to cost and if you're going to forecast your revenues well you have to have some idea of what those revenues are going to be and a lot of that has to do with the economic assumptions that you make right how strong is the economy what kind of GDP growth do we have because if the economy is stronger well, the government's going to collect more in taxes and maybe it won't have to spend as much in uh, welfare programs. Uh, you got to look at interest rates, especially when you have as much debt as the U.S. government does. Interest is a big component of your spending. And so what interest rates are is a very important factor if you're trying to forecast uh, what's going to happen, especially since they always forecast 10 years out, right? The government gives a forecast over 10 years, and so it's making economic projections 10 years into the future on GDP growth, on interest rates, on inflation, on unemployment. But all these forecasts are laughable. They don't know what's going to happen next year, let alone 10 years from now. I mean, we were on the verge of the 2008 financial crisis in the middle of 2008, and none of this was in their forecast. These guys can't see what's staring them in their face let alone what's you know in the distance beyond the horizon so the whole fact that they even have a charade of pretending they know what interest rates or inflation or gdp or unemployment is going to be 10 years from now is laughable but what's even more laughable is their estimates what they are saying because notoriously they are always overly optimistic in all of their estimates. So the things that are supposed to be big, they say they're going to be bigger. And the things that you want to be low, well, they always say they're going to be lower. I mean, first of all, one of the most ridiculous assumptions always has to do with GDP. And if you look at this 10-year projection, they're looking for GDP to grow by 7.8% in Uh, 2022, fiscal 2022. And that would follow the 16.7% growth in 2021, right, which was a sharp rebound with the opening of the economy. Then they're looking for GDP to pull back significantly in 2023, I think 4.2%. And then it falls back off to about 2%. And it stays at around 2% growth uh, each year uh, over the next 10 years. Now, The interesting thing about it is nowhere in this 10-year forecast is there a recession. Even though I don't know that we've ever really gone 10 full years without a recession, you would think that any 10-year forecast for the economy would at least throw one recession in there, maybe a mild one. But no, nobody throws a recession. And it's not just the Biden administration. I don't think there's ever been a presidential budget forecast that had a 10-year horizon of GDP that ever included a year of recession. They just assume that there's no more recessions. Well, we know that it's not just a recession that we have every 10 years, but we have a crisis. We have a complete meltdown, the most recent one being COVID. But you would think, right, we just went through this pandemic. You would imagine now that we have this new playbook What to do when you have a pandemic, when you shut down the entire economy and everybody is quarantined? Wouldn't you want to assume, hey, probably sometime in the next 10 years, this is going to happen again? Maybe COVID is going to come back. Maybe next year, maybe the year after that, maybe there's going to be a mutated strain. Maybe these vaccines won't work. Or maybe it's a totally different type of COVID. Or maybe it's just going to be another financial crisis, right? Maybe interest rates are going to normalize. There may be higher inflation. Maybe we get another financial crisis. So are we going to budget that? No, it's not in there at all. The assumption is everything is great. We have 10 years of uninterrupted growth, no recessions, not another crisis, not a pandemic, not a financial crisis. It is smooth sailing over the last 10 years, even though the chances of that happening are basically zero. Because we don't have a previous 10-year period where we've been able to have that happen. Something always goes wrong. I think it's something like every seven years, five, six, seven years, that's when you have another recession. And given how much debt we have right now, how big this bubble is, not only are we going to have another recession, we're probably going to have a depression. We're going to have the worst economic downturn in U.S. history, yet not even a mild recession is part of this 10-year forecast. Same thing with unemployment. They're looking for unemployment to fall to 4.7% by the end of the year. Then in 2022, it's going to be 4.1%. And then after that, it's going to go 38 And it's just going to stay at 3.8% unemployment for the next seven years right? Exactly 3.8%. Where'd they get that number? How'd they pull that out of their butts? 3.8% for seven years in a row, right? They have no clue. They just put a low number in there. That sounds good. Yeah, we got unemployment below 4%. The most ridiculous part of the assumption, though, is even though they assume that we have uninterrupted growth for the next 10 years, and we have unemployment at 3.8%, neither interest rates nor inflation ever go up in fact look at the projection for the 10-year u.s treasury which is you know they're looking for an average of 1.2 percent in 2021 1.4 percent in 2022 then it's going to go to 1.7 percent in 2023 and the highest they see it getting in 2031 right they're projecting what the yield on a 10-year u.s treasury is going to be in the year 2031 and they're saying it's going to be 2.8 that's it 2.8% 2.8% massive deficit spending, right, all this money printing, and the highest we're going to get in 2031 is 2.8%. We were higher than that in 2019. We had higher yields on U.S. Treasuries in 2019 than what the government is projection for 2031, despite the fact that the deficits are off the charts, the money printing, that is completely ridiculous. Why is the government assuming such a low interest? Because that's the only way to make the numbers not look even worse than they are. They have to assume a ridiculously low rate of interest because if they just assume a normal rate, we can't afford it. So the government has to assume that interest rates are going to be artificially suppressed for 10 years, despite the fact that we have all this uninterrupted growth, despite the fact that we have low unemployment, and also at the same time, where they expect that we have low interest rates they also assume that inflation stays tame in fact looking at the CPI they're looking for 2.1% in 2021 or 2022 and then they're looking for a move up to 2.2% I think by 2023 the highest they have for the CPI for any year I think is 2.3% but Even after getting up there, it drifts back down to below 2%. So even though we're running these massive deficits and we're printing all this money, right? inflation never even gets higher than 2.3% in any one year, even though it's already tracking to be much higher than that. In fact, their forecast right for now for 2021, 2022 of 2.1%, we're already like tripling that in the first four months of the year. So already these CPI numbers are nonsense in fact if you look at some of the inflation numbers I already mentioned the gas price the highest in bed in seven years for the summer but look at what just happened to rents year over year Rents are up 5.4%. That's some kind of a record. We just got those numbers, I think, late last week. 5.4% rise in rents. Now, of course, a lot of this isn't even in the CPI, right? Because it's owner's equivalent rent, which is some made-up rent that nobody actually pays. But if you look at what's happening to the rents that people actually pay, you got a 5.4% annual increase. But look at food. We got the farm price numbers out for April. They came out late Friday afternoon. The month-over-month increase for farm prices is 6.9%. The year-over-year increase is 28%. So food that you get off the farm costs 28% more than it cost a year ago. These are huge, huge numbers they're going to get worse and the government is still sitting here thinking inflation is going to stay around 2% for the next 10 years, just like it was for the past 10 years, even though we have printed all this money, even though we're running all these deficits, these huge unprecedented deficits, these massive deficits are going to have no impact on interest rates. They're going to have no impact on inflation. In fact, if you look at the projections for the deficits themselves- right the deficits never go away you know back in the past presidents when they were coming out with these nonsense these 10 year forecasts the budget always balanced out or came into a small surplus 10 years into the future right nobody wanted to balance the budget now but everybody wanted to pretend that the budget would go into balance in the future because we would get all this economic growth Uh, and the budgets would take care of themselves. And so they would go away in the future. Of course, they never did. They ended up being bigger in the future than they were in the present. But at least they pretended that there was some fiscal responsibility because the budget would eventually balance. Well, we've dropped all pretense. The Biden administration doesn't even pretend that we have a deficit that goes away. All they do is they claim that the deficit as a percentage of GDP is going to decline from the 16.7 percent it was in 2021 to 7.8 percent in the current 2022 year that they're projecting. But after the 10-year period, they predict that every year the deficit will come down as a percentage of GDP, right? The actual deficit may not come down at all, but they expect the economy to keep growing more than the deficits. And so I think Eventually, they have it falling down to 4.2% or something like that. But nowhere, as far as the eye can see, does the deficit ever go away, which, of course, at least is somewhat honest. But, of course, it's completely dishonest in that the deficit is not going to shrink as a share of GDP. It is going to rise. And one of the reasons it's going to rise is because their forecast of interest rates is nuts. Interest rates are going to go up. They're going to go way up eventually. And when they do, debt service is going to maybe become the biggest line item in federal spending. The reason that they can pretend that interest is not going to consume so much of the budget is because they're pretending that interest rates don't go up. Well, the only way the Fed is going to prevent interest rates from going up is by having massive inflation. But they assume that there's no inflation. So they assume the impossible. So this thing is all a fantasy. It has no basis in reality whatsoever. One of the funny parts about it is the criticism from the Republicans of this budget. You have people now coming out and saying, oh, you see, look, Biden administration is only projecting 2% growth, right? You see, this is a failure. We're not gonna have the booming economy that we had under Trump, except we didn't have a booming economy under Trump. Yes, when Donald Trump came out with his budget forecasts, he projected 4%, 5% GDP growth, but we never actually got it. The real GDP growth under Trump was not much better than it was under Biden, except we accomplished it by running even bigger deficits in the first Trump term than in the second Biden term. And this is even before COVID you know, blew a complete hole in that budget. I mean, yes, the, the extra spending post-COVID made a big difference. But even if we never had COVID, even if the deficit spending remained on the trajectory it was in pre-COVID, it would have been way above anything that we experienced in the second term of Obama. And that was what was behind the slightly better GDP numbers, was the much greater amount of debt that was used to finance all that phony growth. So to make fun of the Democrats because they're only projecting 2% and the Republicans projected a lot more is complete hypocrisy. What they really should be calling them out on is that they don't have a recession in the forecast or that their interest rate, unemployment, and inflation assumptions are complete garbage. In fact, I was listening on CNBC Jared Bernstein, who's a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, he was on CNBC defending all these ridiculous assumptions. And one of the ways he defended them is he said, well, you know, we're basically making the same assumptions as the Fed, right? And they're similar assumptions to all these mainstream economists. Yes, exactly. They've all got these Complete BS assumptions. And of course, the Federal Reserve is under a lot of political pressure to come up with these rosy assumptions. They're never going to be honest about it. But just because everybody else has ridiculous numbers, that doesn't mean that the government's numbers are defensible. Because again, none of the mainstream economists forecast the 08 financial crisis. No one at the Federal Reserve forecast the financial crisis. So just because the government had the same bad assumptions as other economists or the Fed doesn't justify these ridiculous assumptions, especially when you just apply logic. None of them make any sense. It is inconsistent to believe that these assumptions are even remotely possible, let alone probable, yet everybody accepts it as if it came down from Mount Sinai on a tablet carried by Moses. Getting to the revenue side, though, They do have some increased revenue as far as tax hikes on the rich and corporations. Biden is assuming that his corporate tax hike to 28% gets passed. He also assumes that we get the increase in the capital gains rate that he has proposed, uh, which is to tax capital gains as ordinary income. He also assumes that we do eliminate the stepped-up basis For inheritance, which is going to impose an extremely onerous burden because then you're going to have to pay the capital gains tax and the inheritance tax simultaneously, which will destroy the value of inheritance and force many businesses into immediate liquidation. But also what probably surprised a lot of people is that Biden is calling for these increased capital gains and estate taxes to take effect retroactively to April 28th, I think is when they go retroactive to. So a lot of people thought that they were gonna have a grace period, that maybe these higher rates wouldn't kick in until 2022 so they would be able to sell some of their appreciated assets in 2021 to avoid the higher tax. Well, the Biden administration wanted to make sure that that would not happen, that nobody was going to be able to avoid these higher taxes. So if you're sitting on some capital gains that you were hoping to realize this year to avoid the tax, well, you can't do it. Now, what that might actually do, perversely, is cause people who might have otherwise realized capital gains at the lower rate not to realize them at all. And so the government won't get even a short-term boost in tax revenue from people who might have otherwise liquidated and paid capital gains in 2021 to avoid paying higher capital gains in 2022, what they may do is just not realize those gains at all. They won't realize them in 2021 and they won't realize them in 2022 either. So you can increase the capital gains tax, but you can't increase how much tax you collect because the taxpayer determines whether or not he realizes those gains. And one of the reasons that a lot of people don't want to realize gains is because they don't want to pay the tax. So they hold on to the gains longer. And so the government derives less capital gains tax revenue. Now, I'm sure none of this is in their forecast because the government always assumes that their taxes have no effect on behavior. So they're going to assume taxpayers are going to continue to realize capital gains at a higher rate at the same rate that they realize them at a lower rate That's not human nature. And again, the same thing applies on the expenditure side as the government creates programs. The number of people who qualify for those programs increases because people alter their behavior to qualify. Either they just lie and pretend they qualify or they actually change their behavior and they're honest about the fact that they've altered their behavior to now qualify for a government program that before the program existed, they wouldn't have qualified for it because it wasn't there. But once they saw that carrot, well, they wanted to get a bite. And finally, what is somehow being reported with a positive spin, the government is going to spend $80 billion extra to hire more IRS agents to harass taxpayers. We should really celebrate the fact that we're going to have more IRS agents making more people's lives miserable. And the biggest problem is initially... All these IRS agents are going to go after the most productive Americans. These are going to be the small business owners, the entrepreneurs, the people who are really the engines of economic growth, who are creating the businesses, creating the jobs, providing the goods and services. These are going to be the primary targets of these new IRS agents. So how is that good news that your boss, instead of spending energy trying to grow the company so that maybe it'll be more profitable and you can get a raise, is now going to be distracted. He's going to be spending time fighting off the government, defending his prior tax returns, defending his deductions. And so his eye is going to be off the ball. More and more resources are going to have to be devoted to protecting yourself from the irs versus growing your business and worrying about the competition this is all bad news the more the u.s government harasses our entrepreneurs and our small business owners the less productive they're going to be the less productive the economy is going to be the less competitive there's going to be the fewer jobs are going to be created all this is going to backfire and of course Once the IRS is finished investigating the wealthier small businessmen, they're going to focus their attention on everybody else. So everybody is going to get audited more often. Not just the rich. A lot of middle-class taxpayers are going to find themselves staring at an IRS audit. They are going to be harassed more than ever before. We do not want to give the government more money to harass more people. This is not good news. This is bad news. (music) Bye.